Welcome to the Valley Avon Podcast, a weekly podcast provided by Valley Community Baptist Church, located in Avon, Connecticut. This week, we'll hear from Pastor Doug Criscow, Global Ambassador for MedSend, as he explores the rewards for giving in secret. Let's join him now. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of worshiping openly and without fear of oppression or persecution. Lord, this is a privilege. Thank you for each person that's exercising it this morning. And may your Holy Spirit now speak through me, through your word, and into our hearts and lives so that we'll be more like you in the next 30 minutes. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, sorry, Red Sox fans. That's worth a clap. I want to talk about what might happen if a Pharisee played baseball. Now, a Pharisee played baseball and he hit a home run. Do you know what he would do? He would stand there and watch that ball arc its way into the bleachers. Then, here it comes, he'd flip his bat and make his celebratory trot around the bases. But you know, the Sadducees, they played football. And when they, where is he? There he is. When they caught... When they caught that touchdown pass, they would have done a dance that it would have rivaled Jamar Chase, that NFL star who made the giddy dance so popular. What's the point? When the Pharisees and the Sadducees gave their offering at the temple, they might as well have been one of these modern athletes who draw all kinds of attention to themselves when they hit a home run or catch a touchdown pass. Now, how you feel about bat flips and touchdown dances, that's completely up to you. But my job this morning is to draw on Matthew 6, 1 to 4, to point out that Jesus is very concerned about our approach to giving an offering. And the fact of the matter is, the way the Sadducees and the Pharisees did it was all wrong. You see, Matthew 6 is going to turn its attention to three typical activities of godly people. Godly people give offerings. Godly people pray. Godly people fast. But the manner and motivation with which we do these things is critically important in this message. So I hope, as a result of spending this half hour together, we'll all have an improved motivation and manner when it comes to giving. Now, we're going to start by 
looking into this concept of reward. I decided to do that because I noticed in four short verses, rewards are mentioned three times. And then I looked a little further, and I found out that over a hundred times in the Bible, rewards are mentioned in one form or another. So I went to my mentor, Chuck Swindoll, who wrote eloquently on this subject, and I've drawn a couple of ideas from him to share with you. So what are biblical rewards? They're blessings that we receive mainly in heaven, but also on earth, according to 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 14. Now, Matthew 6, 1 to 4 makes it obvious that the religious leaders were giving in a way that was inappropriate. They were drawing too much attention to themselves. And the text says that if you're going to give like that, yeah, you'll get a little bit of attention from people, but that's all the reward you'll receive. Nothing eternal and nothing of substance. Now, in 2017, this church did a survey of all of its ministries. And one of the ministries that was found to be most highly regarded was the manner in which we processed donations. It was confidential. It had full integrity. And folks were saying in this survey that when we give to this church, we know the money is going to be handled appropriately. In a manner of speaking, you could say that the, the spirit of Matthew 6, 1 to 4 has made its way into the way that we process money here at Valley Avon. And that's a good thing. Up in Valley Simsbury, where I spend most of my church volunteer time, we have a specific process that excludes Pastor Mark, our senior pastor, from seeing what's in the offering and who gives and how much. The only thing that Pastor Mark hears about is, is the total amount of the offering, which helps him as we manage our budget plan from week to week. So, how do you approach giving? I hope it's with the manner and the motivation that Matthew 6, 1 to 4 is presenting. The second idea about rewards is that they're based on quality, not quantity. And this means regarding giving that regardless of how much you might be giving, there's an appropriate attitude and motivation that Jesus is asking us to assume. You know, typically, you don't talk about giving in July. In a church, that's when the money is going down. People aren't giving as much. And then typically in fall, we sort of catch up again. But, you know, the way we roll around here is that if it's in the Scriptures, we're going to talk about it. And so that's the subject of this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And the fact of the matter is, I volunteered to speak on this. Why? Because giving is a foundational part of my spiritual story. 
over my entire lifetime, from the time I was in high school, God has been challenging me in different ways about giving. And you know, he has come through for me. He has shown himself faithful to me so many times that I look at giving as one of my faith building blocks. Now, I'm not saying that's the feeling you need to have about giving, but I will say that you need to be evaluating. Are you giving with generosity? Are you giving with confidentiality? This is what we're hearing in this passage. Now, admittedly, I tacked on generosity because when you take all of the New Testament teachings about giving, generosity would be the one word that would sum up the teaching. So we want to be generous givers and we want to be confidential givers. I hope that you're not just giving out of duty and, and obligation because that's just not the idea that God had in mind when he asked us to give. Now, it's possible that you don't give anything to church. Statistically, we're told that about 20% of church attenders give nothing. I hope that's not the case with you because that would basically violate this whole passage and, and the spirit that it speaks about in giving. Now, can one sermon change your approach to giving? I think it's possible because it actually happened to me. About 25 years ago, I was working at a, a church in the Midwest, and I sat in a service just like you're doing, and the senior pastor was preaching about giving. And while uh, the giving of Christine, my wife and I, was, was already... I would say it was generous, and, and we had thought it through and prayed it through. We, we thought we were doing the right thing, and, and we were. But the Holy Spirit spoke to me during that message, saying, I believe you should be doing more. I thought about that conviction that was growing inside me. I talked to Christine about it when I got home, and together we made another big step in our life of giving to Jesus, financial giving in particular. And you know, God has been just as faithful since we made that commitment as he was before. And then last year, we, we made another dimension to our commitment, and God is still faithful. I so want you to have that experience. I so want you not to fear that, oh, if you give, then somehow... You're going to be shortchanged or some big struggle is going to come. I don't believe that will happen. And I encourage you. I encourage you, even though it is the middle of July, that you think about the possibility of increasing your giving. A completely private matter, obviously, but think about it. Now, getting back to rewards, we also discover that there are some earthly rewards. And one of these is awareness that Christ's love is being modeled. How does this work out? Well, I have a story to tell about my wife who hastened to suggest after last night's sermon that I broaden it. It wasn't just Christine in this 
ministry, there were several women who took a short-term mission trip to Bridgeport. Now, you might think, that's a trip to Bridgeport? Well, we were serving in a church in Fairfield, and yeah, it was only five miles from Fairfield to the center of Bridgeport. But you know, the cultural layers and dimensions that multiplied between Fairfield and inner Bridgeport were many. And my wife and several other women spent a week in a Christian rehabilitation center for women who were, who were uh, substance abusers, were trying to rehabilitate from drugs. And the first thing that my wife noticed is that practically all of the women in this facility were mothers, but few of them were married. And then as she spent more time, and as the other women spent more time, they discovered that very few of these women knew anyone that had been married for very long at all. Now, my wife and a couple of the others, they'd been married for 25 years. And when the clients discovered this, they were astounded. They ended up asking the trip members, why did you come down here? They were curious as to why suburban women with stable marriages would come and spend time praying and listening to the stories of these women, most of whom had very bad experiences in marriage, if at all, and were struggling just to handle the basics of life. Well, in that situation, my wife and the other trip members were truly aware that they were Christ's model to these women. It was a terrific experience and led, in my wife's case at least, to taking many, many more mission trips. Now, have you ever felt like you were that model of Christ's life before someone? I'm sure some of you have, but if you haven't, I encourage you to put yourself in a situation where that's a possibility. Make a Difference Week is coming up. There are certain venues for Make a Difference Week activities where you can be that model, and I'd encourage you to pursue that. The fact of the matter is, the world around us needs, so needs to see the model of Christ-like behavior. I came across an ad in the Hartford Current a couple of weeks ago. It was a full-page ad, and across the top it said, I'm secular and I vote. Now, this was not a political advertisement for a specific candidate. Please understand that. But what it was, was an inducement to join an organization that I had never heard of before called the Freedom From Religion Foundation. Now, I'm familiar with freedom of religion. In fact, I cherish it because I've been in a lot of countries where there is no freedom of religion. But this organization, Freedom 
from religion is populated largely by atheists. And the ad claims that 29% of the United States population can now be categorized as nuns. Now, these are not Catholic sisters. These are people with no religious affiliation. Now, from some other research I did, I discovered about 15 years ago, the number of nuns was about 17%. So if you take a growth of 12% over 15 years, that would make atheism probably the fastest growing belief system, if you will, in the entire country. Folks, we can't just ignore this kind of thing. We, we just can't brush it off and think, oh, well, you know, that's just some irritation. They'll get over it. No. This is a growing segment of our population, and it has substance to it. There are 23 chapters of the Freedom from, from Religion Foundation around the country. They've got a national convention this fall in Texas. And enlisting their accomplishments, one of the notable uh, victories that they had was being able to make a Big Ten college take a prayer out of the beginning of their graduation ceremony. That's the kind of agenda that Freedom from Foundation, uh, the Freedom from Religion Foundation is pursuing. We just can't be idle and figure someone else will do it when it comes to living a life that models Christ. The second earthly reward that we can experience is stimulating a thankful spirit. It was mentioned that I work for this group called MedSend, and MedSend pays the educational loans of healthcare professionals who want to serve in missions. One of the things that truly inspires me is when we receive notes and uh, emails from these missionaries who are serving on the field, and they're thanking us. They're telling us we could not be serving here in medical missions unless MedSend was paying for our educational loan debt. We are doing this, MedSend, for 100 different missionaries at the same time. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of work to communicate this message and opportunity. But I am glad to participate in it because of the thankful spirit that I see in these medical missionaries who express their appreciation on a regular basis. Now, I think it's easy enough to understand these earthly rewards, being a model of Christ, thankful spirit, that, that all pretty much lines up. But when we talk about eternal rewards, where most of our rewards are going to be experienced, then it becomes more complex and, and harder to imagine. Because we're told that our last reward will be returned to God as an act of praise. 
You've probably heard about this before. We're told actually eight different times in Scripture that we're going to receive crowns in heaven that will then lay at the feet of Jesus. That's a, that's a scene that it's, it's just hard to imagine. And I think there's part of all of us in our training of modesty that, oh, I, I don't know, I'm not trying to get any rewards. Well, no, that's not the idea. You're not trying to get rewards, but you will be rewarded if you live a life of faithfulness. This will be a joyous experience, something that we should look up to, even though we may tend to defer in modesty. Now, besides speaking about rewards, I I want to recognize what I'd like to call the, the power of hyperbole. Many times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks with exaggeration. You can't literally take what Jesus is saying. You, you've got to use a little discernment and see that, that there's, there's a figure of speech or that there's, there's a, an illustration that's intended to bring across whatever point he's making with greater power. And that happens to be true in Matthew 6, 1 to 4. Because what does Jesus say? He, he says, your giving should be done in secret. Okay, that's easy enough to understand. But then he says, and your left hand should not know what your, what your right hand is doing. Well, how does that work? Well, it really doesn't. It's just a figure of speech to suggest complete anonymity and privacy in your giving and doing nothing to draw attention to yourself. And I think Jesus uses this hyperbole because when he speaks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what does he say about them? He says that they give in the temple while horns are being blown, while music is being played, so that everybody will notice this is the time that the leaders are giving their offering. Well, I did a little research on this, and the fact of the matter is no one can find a tradition or a process that was regularly done in the temple that replicates this model. The fact is Jesus, again, is making an exaggerated point using a figure of speech, thus the hyperbole brings a power to the point that wouldn't necessarily be available any other way. Now, the last thing I'd like to talk about is a contradiction, actually. If you look at two verses, one from Matthew 5 and one from Matthew 6, I call this a lamp on a stand versus a candle in a closet. I want to account for the fact that Matthew 5.16 says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. While in Matthew 6 we read, when you give to the needy, let it be in secret. So, which is it? Are, Are we supposed to do things for God so that we're noticed? Or are we supposed to do things for God in secret? Well, the fact of the matter is there are two different focuses of ministry 
that are the point in Matthew 5 versus Matthew 6. A.B. Bruce was a Scottish theologian, and he captured the balance between these two ideas rather succinctly. He said, we are to show when tempted to hide, talking about our good works, but we are to hide when tempted to show, when talking about giving. You know, a, a frequent caricature, caricature of the church by media and other descriptions that uh, we read about is that the church is a, is a small and, and very uh, closed group of people. And they huddle together on a weekly basis, very concerned about their beliefs and their traditions, and completely oblivious to the world around them. That's a common perception of the church. And it's been backed up in my own experience. I recall several times when I was a pastor here, I would receive a phone call from someone outside of our church, someone who doesn't know our church, but they hear about a, a marriage workshop or they hear about a kid's program. And I've received calls basically asking permission, may I come to your event? May I come to your children's program? Well, I felt bad for these people because I think, innocently enough, they're assuming that the church is that closed community that is expressed so many times in general communication in our culture. And who am I? I'm the outreach pastor. I'm saying, come on in. We'd love to have you. Have your child go to this program or bring your spouse in and come to the marriage workshop, whatever it is. We want to be an open group of people. We want to be a welcoming group of people, no matter what the background is of people walking through our doors. You know, Valley does this in a few ways really well. We just heard the encouragement to grab a blue bag and go and and collect some food and, and, and offer it to the Gifts of Love or, or to the Hartford City Mission. And the fact of the matter is, as far as Gifts of Love is concerned, that's the Avon Food Bank, essentially. We are the greatest contributor. In fact, last year in November, we had Make a Difference Month, and during that month, the program director for Gifts of Love told us it was the largest offering of food they had ever received. I'm so glad that we've earned that distinction. And you know, when, when they ask for food, we, we just give food. That's what they're asking for. We don't try to slip a Bible verse in next to the can of peas, hoping that, you know, someone will get the message that we're trying to communicate. No, we just give them food. But you know, at South Park Inn, that's a homeless shelter that we've been involved with for years we're able to integrate our two concerns. We present outstanding meals. We actually, for a long time, had one individual who paid for the whole meal, and it would be like steak and roast beef, you know, not top ramen and noodles. This guy presented the greatest meals, and so we became sort of known for that. Oh, when Valley is presenting the meal, it's going to be great. But then we asked the leadership, 
would it be okay if we invited people to a Bible study after the dinner? And they said, sure, do what you want. So we would do that, and about 15% of the folks would choose after the meal to come into a Bible study. And out of that group, we had a handful of people make professions of faith. So we can be that beacon of God's light in the community, sometimes just to meet a physical need, like gifts of love, or other times we can meaningfully and appropriately integrate the story of the gospel. In either case, we are reflecting that ethic of Matthew 5, verse 16. You know, the freedom from religion foundation has a a special fee structure. I looked at uh, what it costs to become a member. And they include a student fee, a very low amount of money, because they're trying to draw in next generation participants into their atheistic platform and approach to voting. We need to understand that and not panic, but we need to be concerned. And you should know, and I hope you pray for the next generation ministry that we have here at the church, because it's true that the younger people are, at least in the adult age ranges, the younger people are, the more inclined they are to be a nun, to have no religious affiliation. We need to counter that. We need to do all that we can to draw in younger people and let them see there's a God that loves them. Now, I started this message with a general illustration about baseball. But I'm going to end it with another story from baseball that's real. It involves a pitcher named Mariana Rivera. Now, Mariana Rivera was a Christ follower, but more important to the baseball world, he was the best relief pitcher that ever lived. Even Red Sox fans occasionally admit that. And something I noticed about Rivera that really made me admire him was that when he pitched well, which was most of the time, and he was interviewed, he he really wasn't a very good interview. He, He was uncomfortable talking about himself and his accomplishments. But occasionally, Rivera messed up. And while I didn't like that as a Yankee fan, I was always intrigued with the way that he would talk about his failing efforts in pitching. You know what he would say? He would say, I didn't pitch well. I didn't do my job. I didn't do my job. I want to ask you, what is your job as a result of being in this worship service? What is God telling you to do? I hope you'll come away with a conviction, with a true desire 
to not only give generously and in secret, but also to allow your life to be a light that shines on a very dark world that is around you. And that along the way, you'll accept whatever rewards God might want to give you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of the Valley Avon podcast. If you would like to hear more, you can subscribe for free on any platform you use. If you would like to visit us in person or would like to submit a prayer request, you can visit us on the web at avon.valleycommunity.cc. From all of us here at Valley Community Baptist Church, thank you for coming and have a blessed week.